Hi, everyone, and welcome to another new episode of Live from Pawnee. I'm Alan, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Mark. Mark, how are you today? Alan of the Roundtable, I am doing great, buddy. I am raring to go, and I, I'm here to tell you, I'm kind of pumped about today's special episode because it's another... Live from Pawnee presents Pawnee Spotlight. That's right. You you hit the nail on the head there. We've got a special spotlight episode again today, and I've been looking forward to doing this one. Yeah, Alan, it, I agree. I, I've been looking forward to letting our viewers hear this for uh, probably about a week, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And what we're referring to, of course, is our, our interview with Michael Trem, director and producer Michael Trem. If you listen to our episode last week, you get to hear a few clips from that interview. And today in this spotlight episode, as we often do in our spotlights, we're going to let you hear the entire interview. And um, I think it's going to be a really interesting one for anyone who's kind of interested in the craft of making television. I completely agree. And I like his style of communication, too. He's very much in the storytelling uh, milieu, if you will. Very much so. I found him to be um, both obviously um, very experienced and knowledgeable, but also very thoughtful in his responses. I completely agree. Yep. Well said. Yeah. So, you know, it gives us a little insight into what happens behind the camera, um, how, how the look of the, the episode is basically created and kind of had his experience with that in Parks and Recreation and in other shows. He was also a longtime director, producer and uh, DP for the television show Weeds on Showtime as well. Yep, that's right. That's right. Which obviously a totally different show, but, uh, you know, same skill set. And uh, it was interesting to hear how he said it got applied to Parks and Recreation specifically. And he's been on Parks and Rec a lot, especially as DP, right? Yeah, I think from season two to season four, he did about 33 episodes. Not quite all of them, but pretty close to all of them within that, you know, year and a half there. Right. And uh, he wasn't part of season one. He came on in season two. Uh, I think with this, the first episode of season two and was there until the episode we just recorded, which was Operation Anne. Very nice. Well, let, let's get into this. Let's do that. Hey, Constantine, uh, why don't you hit that button over there? We'll play this interview and then we'll be right back. Well, today we've got a terrific special guest with a 40-year career spanning roles as cinematographer, director, and producer, and covering dozens of credits in both movies and television. He's best known for his work on Weeds, Parks and Recreation, and Orange is the New Black. He won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Cinematography for an episode of the television show Weeds. And uh, we want to welcome today Michael Trim. Hey, Michael. Good morning. <laughs> I just had this tremendous uh, coughing and sneezing fit. <laughs> exactly 1059. It was perfect time. Yeah. There you go. That's the way it always works, right? How's everyone? We're doing great. Doing good. How are you, sir? I'm good. We had ours a little earlier, so we're okay. Yeah. Okay. Staying at a friend's loft in New York. I came in to visit the kids. Nice. So you're normally based on the West Coast? I live in Pasadena. Pasadena. Okay. Yeah, I live in Pasadena. Very nice. I grew up back here. Lived in New York forever, and then uh, married a Pasadena girl. There you go. <laughs> and I was here when it was like crack and all that, and it was time to go. Yeah, well, <clears throat> definitely heard that before. So, but it's time to come back. Yeah, I've heard good things about the city. I've been there. I haven't been there since uh, 2012. It's been a minute. So, 
Oh, yeah, no, it changes so quick. So, and then what's what's the deal here? This is my second one. Really? That's it? Wow. Okay, well, we're honored. Yeah, and they, so they somehow tracked me down and were asking me all these questions. They were also interested. <laughs> it's funny because she found out. I didn't even realize this was in my IMDb, but some videos I did. And she was really curious about the Savage Garden video. It's like so funny to work on things that like at, that happen at a certain point in people's lives. And it's so meaningful to them. Yeah. You know, because because they were like 12 or whatever. Yeah. 10, and it was like that first song that they loved or, you know. Yep. And and like I couldn't even remember the thing. <laughs> like I actually had to look it up. Really? And even the first 30 seconds was like, this is not familiar. Wow. <clears throat> and then eventually there was this one shot that I, I remembered. But yeah, videos, I could be watching a video and be almost all the way through before I realized I shot it. <laughs> Did you do that many videos back in the day? Yeah. Okay. I mean, there was, there was, that was a, a part of my uh, big chunk of my uh, DP career. I started in commercials and videos, so. Got it. Started, you know, working with Fincher because when I moved to California, I, I was a gaffer and I ended up with this guy who was shooting for Fincher. So I see. There you go. Back then it was easy to look good. But we got into the podcast to answer your question earlier. What, what year and a year quarter? And a half ago. Year and a half now? Yeah. During the pandemic, because we were both b- ah. bored and going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I mean, that, yeah, that, that makes absolutely perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. We, we love this show and we're like, hey, no one's done a deep dive on this show yet. And uh, at that point, there weren't any cast members, you know, like Rob Lowe and Alan Yang doing the show. And uh, theirs is definitely different than ours anyway, because we talk a lot <laughs> and uh, we, we kind of break apart and analyze the episode at a uh, an annoyingly scientific level. Yeah. Well, so wait, Rob Lowe has a podcast about yeah, parks? Yeah. They yeah, started yeah. Uh, three or four months ago. That sounds about right. He, he does it with Alan? With Alan, yeah. Huh. So uh, I'm sure you'll get that call too. That'd be your third. No, you know, somebody somebody did send me uh, something that um, there was some podcast and it was Rob Lowe and uh, Nick Offerman and somebody else. And because Rob was, Rob was inadvertently sort of bad-mouthing uh, the look of the show, hmm. which is not a hard thing to do. Offerman then like made the point, because I, I, I honestly, I don't think Rob knew or understood uh, the look of the show because, you know, Greg wanted me to make it look. Shitty. Yeah. I mean, it's a documentary, right? Right. I hated it. I hated it. No, it's not even a documentary that that's, this is fascinating. You know, I, I didn't do the first season where they had like six episodes. They think yeah, they hadn't quite figured it out. Like they hadn't figured out the characters, uh, you know, what's his name? They got rid of shortly after the, the middle of the second season. Oh yeah. Yeah. The actor who played Mark Brandanowitz, yeah, that character. Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider. Um, because that character just didn't fit into that yeah. world. And Paul's a great actor, but. Yeah. <clears throat> but they were still figuring things out. So they, they, <clears throat> they wanted to get a new crew, a new DP and uh, some other new people. And I knew the producer Morgan from some other shows. So Morgan called me and asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, no, that, uh, I had uh, I thought other things would uh, would would rear their head because it was pilot season and it was the, you know different it was time for like a new job the weed season was ending hmm. and I said no at first because I really don't like that style that's a really un it's thankless for a DP so I said no and then three weeks went by and none of those things uh, panned out so I called Morgan. 
I said, you know, I'll, I'll take that interview. <laughs> so I did. <clears throat> so I meet with Greg Daniels and Mike Shore. I don't think Mike said anything at that meeting. Hardly anything. It was all Greg. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they always say, you, you have any questions for us? And I'm like, yeah, I understand the conceit of the office. But I said, so who's making this documentary? Just so I know. Yeah. Just to have in my in the back of my head that might affect how we shoot it, maybe. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, he goes, oh, no, nobody. You know, Greg, Greg has this persona of a, of a, he's a very funny guy. He's like an absent-minded professor. Kind of place. <laughs> you feel like Greg's just kind of floating through uh, life on his own wavelength. It's very unique, you know, really interesting. And um, I said, but he goes, no, no, that's just the thing now. Now, now, now it's just a style. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Cause I mean, nobody had really said that before that like, I mean, I guess it was the thing that sort of yeah. began that. Yeah. Uh, well, the office for sure. Right. Yeah. But in the office, you were still supposed to think that they were making something. I think sure. maybe by the end you weren't, but yeah. <clears throat> so, um, I said, sure. So, uh, so they gave me the job and then the first day we shot the, uh, I guess it was the first episode of the second season, which took place in the zoo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On yeah. The zoo. Yeah. And because of the nature of the way they shoot, because they shoot it, you know, the, I mean, we had the operators were documentary uh, cameramen and women um, to keep that feel. <clears throat> uh, there's something to it where you're like zooming in, you're moving, like doing that kind of thing. And, and especially to be good at that and to actually, uh, you know, where, where that actually matters in the scene. So but because of that, because you have two, sometimes three cameras and they're pointing at each other almost, <clears throat> there's no there's no room to put any equipment. Uh. So what you would normally do with Amy is put something over her head, pretty large so that the sun didn't really hit her because it was like midday. Yeah. She's got that. She, she had, her hair was really um, more white back then almost. Yeah. White blonde. Yeah. And the sun would come down and just light this part of her nose. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, I'm looking, there's nothing I can do. I'm hoping for a cloud. Yeah. And it was just horrible, you know, for, for a DP. So um, yeah. the next day I went up and I think I remember telling Greg and Mike, sure, you should look at the dailies now because you don't want to waste time. We can get a new DP right away. <laughs> and he's like, they're like, it's fine. <laughs> wow. And I said, I said, you honestly think that that's fine. Yeah. I said, all right. There will come a day when she doesn't. <laughs> but Amy bought into it. I mean, she 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 got it. And and we we eventually figured out some tricks, especially inside, to make people look uh, you know, as as good as we could do. And that, that that was I mean, my gaffer was losing his mind because there was so little for us to do really. And um I told him, I said, Well look, all we gotta do is make it look better than the office. Not hard. Not hard. No. no. Well, you know, I, I was looking, you know, looking at all the episodes that you directed. Uh, you did four episodes as director and I think 33 total as DP. Yeah. Um, from the director seat are, you know, you did, uh, let's see, you had park, park safety, 
April and Andy's yeah. fancy party where they got married. Operation Anne, which is the episode we're actually going to cover, uh, I think, as we airported this interview. Right. And then your your final episode was fluoride, I think, in the sixth season with Jeremy Jam and all those guys. Um, anything stand out to you is memorable? Yeah, you would think I would have thought of that before the. Uh... <laughs> it's not. It's, there's no one big thing. What stands out is memorable to me now. I mean, you know, it was always funny. Everyone's always funny. Yeah. Uh, it, what, what stands out now is just meeting those people at that time. Mm. Um, I mean, what did I see the other day? I mean, I know Aubrey's huge, but the other day I see she's in the next Guy Ritchie movie, for God's sake. Yeah. Wow. You know, like number two on the call sheet. I'm sure it's, you know, after, after Jason Statham. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, everybody, um, Pratt, Jesus. Yeah, we've got three between the guest actors and the cast. We've got three people in the Marvel cinematic universe from this show. It's crazy. Well, who else you got? You got, uh, Pratt, so Pratt obviously a star Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, you had, um, Paul Rudd as Ant-Man. Oh yeah. I didn't, I never, I never did. I wasn't around for any of the, you, you were already off the show by that point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. So. And then uh, Catherine Hahn played a political consultant on the show later in those later seasons as well. And then she went on to be Agatha Harkness, right. uh, you know, from uh, Scarlet Witch. Witch. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, no, it was all and, and even and not just uh, the actors. I mean, Aziz, yeah. you know, and I'm a big uh, fan of Bollywood and, you know, and I'm so I'm like Aziz Bollywood. And he's like. Dude, I know nothing about Bollywood. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, he's like, I didn't, you know, <laughs> I know about rap, which is hilarious. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, just all of those people were just so fascinating and so much fun to watch. And it was fun to watch the whole, again, like, you know, I'm much more, I'm, I, I really like a more strict narrative thing at this point. This kind of comedy is just so crazy. You really got to be, there's a certain energy mm. and it's a, and it's also not, I mean, this stuff really, I think the, the most fun visuals really come down to the operators, not the, uh, not the DP. Like, I think the best thing I did was make sure that those operators were who they were. I had one more follow up on that with you behind the camera and, and both roles as a director and a DP, you know, what's different about wearing each of those hats? Cause I think we, we don't fully understand that. So kind of help us get to that. That's a good question. I'm not sure I fully understand it. <laughs> um, I, there were a couple of shows, <clears throat> there were a couple of episodes of Weeds, and I think one, one or two episodes of Orange mm. that I shot and directed. And then at, the, at that, when I did that, I mean, especially on Weeds, but since I did Weeds for like seven or eight years, and it was all the same crew. Like when I was the director and the DP, uh, I told them, I said, we, just, we could just make believe there's no director. Mm. And then just kind of the way we always wanted to, like when there's a bad director, <laughs> it's like, you know, if we could just get rid of uh, that person, we, we, would, we would do a better job and have fun. But, but the difference is, and, it's, and it, it is different from show to show because of, like being a, what the DP was on uh, Weeds is much different from what the DP is on. On, on parks. I mean, you know, normally a DP is in charge of lighting and trying to help them stage and uh, how to tell the story visually. Some directors are awesome at that. You know, you work with somebody like Fincher, you don't really come up with a lot of uh, things to tell him. 
Yeah, they have a vision. You know? I mean, he's, he's pretty, I mean, he has a pretty exact vision. Yeah. You know, he does a lot of previs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he, he'll, he'll move from it, but for the most part, that's a person who knows, who knows what he wants. <laughs> um, you know, I've had other directors who uh, come from different backgrounds and they'll rehearse the scene and then basically ask the DP, now what should we do? And that's fine. You know, everyone's strengths lie in different places. So when I'm, when I'm the, uh, it's hard, I'm still, there's so many different ways to accomplish so many different things. And the business is changing so quickly, like uh, technologically. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lights. I don't, I don't even know what these lights are called. And I haven't, the last time I shot something was, I think that those episodes of Orange. I mean, I didn't, rem- I didn't, didn't know what those lights were called. <laughs> it's literally how fast, you know, things have changed. Lights aren't hot anymore. That's true. LEDs are a different animal. Yeah, I mean, no, when you're shooting outside in New York in the winter, you used to go over to a light. <clears throat> yeah. Not anymore. But like things like that, you know, and like even and the whole digital thing. Yeah. That I tried to embrace when that happened because uh, I had, you know, I, had, I knew a lot of people who were like, I'm not going to do digital. I mean, they ended up doing it, but it was like they fought it at first. Yeah. And I, I mean, early on, I realized I could take a side or whatever, but. I don't see anybody creative making these decisions and I'm being told what to use. So those kinds of things, but, uh, no, and then as a director, I think you just, I think a director is, is more about, well, not more, but it's about, uh, leadership it's about mm-hmm. making people feel that, uh, everybody's on the same page. It works too hard, you know, to, uh, to, to play around and to not, to not kind of have a general idea of what you're doing because, yeah. because then everybody suffers. Other people work harder. Yeah. So for me, I think that's, I mean, especially in television, I'm reading a biography of Michael Cimino, you know, and, and, and it just makes you realize how different movies are or were anyway. But in television, part of the job is you have five days to complete this script yeah, yeah, you're the director. You should have some sense of what the story is and like, you know, some feel the emotions, know how to get them across. But within that big pie of your responsibilities, and it is not a small wedge. It mm. is to get it done in five days. So you can make it harder or you can make it easier. <laughs> and and that, that goes all the way through. I never felt that uh, Parks made it harder. Mm. Yeah, but weeds could have made it easier because weeds, um, we would shoot five days. Many of those days would be like uh, 13, 14 hours. And then at the end, they would literally throw out one one day's worth of shooting. Wow. Because it's just because Genji always wanted to have another chance to sort of re-edit it again. So to do that, you uh, shoot more than you need. Now I have, now I have like not not arguments because I, I don't know, I don't know who to argue with. But <laughs> I mean, I just did a show. I've been working for AMC, so I worked on the show Sixty First Street. It's, I saw that. I think it just I think it just came out. Yeah. And AMC said ten hour days. 
So I'm like, wow. So they added a couple days to the schedule and the days were 10 hours. And you also have to work with the writers to make sure that there's, that you're not shooting too much. Mm. Uh, like just be better at what you want to shoot. So that was fine. It was actually extremely odd, uh, only working 10 hours a day. I don't ever remember doing it very rarely. So go on to another show that I just did in New Orleans called Killing It with Craig Robinson. And, uh, and I know those guys because the, the writers are from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and they're from right, Parks. Right. And uh, you know, I told them about the 10-hour days. And they were like, well, how'd they do that? So they added a day on at the end, but they also made sure that the writers know. Mm. I think writers are now also producers, but they're not. (laughs) There are a few who understand what that is. But again, part of that wedge, you know, like they say to me, well, how would you do it? I'm like, well, I would take. You're a producer. You're also a writer. But I would tell my writers, you guys are very good. That's why we hired you. Make the script 30 pages, not 33. (laughs) It's real simple. Yeah. Make that the rule. Yeah. But they won't. So you end up shooting more than you need. You're working too hard. And again, I think that part of this is my age, (laughs) you know, and having done it for so long and just feeling like, come on, you know, you can figure it out. It's not... I mean, really, just for some silly comedy. Well, I'm interested in what you just said in terms of um, the limits. So like Mike Schur has said that he actually, you know, in the streaming age, right, you know, you're not limited to 2130 anymore for a half hour sitcom. You know, it can be arbitrary, 42 minutes long. But he liked the that construct because it, he said you ended up with the best stuff that way. So did the 10 hour day ultimately you know, the way you all work together, make the best stuff because you had that limitation? Uh, well, it, you know, it's funny that you see it as a limitation because it was just how much stuff do we have to do in this 10 hour day? Okay. You know, you know, normally at the beginning, you go through with your assistant director. So it's a thing that I hate doing, but they ask you to sit there and say, so here's the schedule, you know, so you have all 12 days of the schedule in front of you. So here's day one. We have scene five. We have scene seven. Mm-hmm. Then we have to make a move down the street and do this. You know, how long do you think this scene will take? This scene will take. And that's where you fit it in. And you also, you start doing that very early, or at least the assistant director does. Uh, so that then you can begin to warn people like the mm-hmm. writers or somebody like, you know, right now I have too many scenes that take place in one day on this street. And I can only be on that street for one day because of the, you know, because that's where everything else comes in is we want that location. We can only get that location next Wednesday, you know, between 7 AM and 5 PM. So then you gotta, then you gotta finagle that stuff. And so I think there is, but that, that doesn't, I don't remember that happening quite as much on, uh, on parks, but that's partly because parks was predominantly a stage show. Mm. Like when you're, when you have a good uh, bunch of locations, that's a different story and you got to deal with it differently, but sure. But yeah, those are all the things that, that come into play again, like not as much when, when you're on stage, you, you have a lot of leeway schedule wise. Cause you're, you have all, you know, 
so-and-so got sick today. Let's go, let's go shoot over here on the courthouse set or something, you know, something else. Whereas if you're on location and -and so-and-so got sick, it's like, Oh my God, what do we do? And where do we go? And how do we do it? So it's a fascinating business. I feel really lucky. Michael, there's something I wanted to ask you. I I know that uh, in the past, Alan and I have discussed uh, how for a mockumentary like the office or parks and rec, uh, the, the camera placement is is so important in terms of, you know, or do you have a long zoomed in shot? Are you listening to a private conversation? And it really adds so much to the screen. I mean, even more than the actors and actresses can do themselves. It's almost like right. the camera, I think we've said, is basically like another actor uh, on the screen. And I was curious what your take of uh, was on that. Have you spoken to any of them? No, but no. we've actually I, there are two that I am I'm stalking currently <laughs> that we're trying to make a connection with. Which one, Shauna? <laughs> yes, that's one. And and she is. I mean, I I actually felt that she was a character. Amy used to reference her. <laughs> yeah, and then who's the uh, the other one? Who's now DP? Tom. Tom, right? Yeah, those were the two. I'll I'll figure out a way to get you guys in touch with them. Terrific. That'd we appreciate awesome. that. Thank you very much. Because I think that is I think that is more than you know the characters everybody knows and loves and like, you know, everybody has their favorites and stuff and their favorite uh, episodes. But I think the camera really was important. I mean, look, when I left, I think they just bumped Tom up to be DP. But I think they realized it because, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't even need to know anything about lighting on that show. Right. Right. You know, they, they, if you walked into a room with the fluorescent, it, it, you may not feel great about it and you know, you would change something, but they didn't care. Yeah. So, well, I think, it probably adds to the reality a little bit because I think sometimes things look too perfect. I, I wonder if having some of those non-ideal configurations from a DP perspective weren't necessarily a, a, sometimes a good thing. They're a good thing. Then it's just a matter of whether you like them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I understand the concept. Right. Right. It was just, I would have rather have been doing something that was pretty. I mean, look, I got called upstairs like third weekend. They said, Greg wants to see you upstairs. And I'm like, so I got up and I told Jeff, my gaffer, I'm like, I think this is it. I, th- I think we're going to go home. <laughs> so, so I go up and um, Greg says, I, you know, I want to show you something. So he puts on the, uh, the screen and he shows me it's a, one of those shots of Amy at her desk. And he says, see that, see that shaft of light in the background? I'm like, yeah. He goes, let's not do that. And it was like the one thing that we did. You know what I mean? Like, to make us feel like we were doing something. <laughs> and I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. I'm like, but it, you know, but it looks, it looks nice. He goes, yeah, no, that's, that's the problem. Oh, interesting. Mm. You know, he wanted, he felt like it looked as if somebody had put it there, like, you know, in, in his mind. And that's not, that interfered with the way he saw the show. So, I mean, it's interesting that it's always interesting to me when you think something through to that place where it's sort of an anti idea. Yeah. So, and, Look, you know, it worked. It worked. People, it is amazing how much people love that show. I have a Pawnee, I have a Parks and Rec jacket. And it, it's a, a Carhartt with the Parks and Rec logo. Yeah. Pawnee Parks and Rec. It doesn't look like any movie, sh- like any movie garbage that people wear. And I'll be in an elevator or like, you know, in line at Whole Foods and I'll see somebody just kind of like glance and like do like a little double take <laughs> and then look up at me. It's hilarious. That's great. People's connection with the show was so, I mean, that's the genius of Shure. Shure's got a big heart. I think, you know, and besides being, you know, Harvard genius, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, <clears throat> I mean, because there's a lot of people who've had that 
you know, have that on their resume. But uh, I think he just has a big, uh, his soul is pretty, pretty, pretty big. Wow. Uh, I mean, I mean, that's what, that's what, I mean, that's what it shows her. Yeah, we've seen that consistency throughout them, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's always thinking about something and it's usually not, not something stupid. So you've talked about Greg, I think more than anyone else has in terms of interacting with him. In our world, I think we would have come into this thinking Greg was there in the beginning because Greg and Mike sold the show to NBC. And then Greg kind of disappeared and Mike ran the show. And occasionally Greg would come on set and say hi. Like, is it more than that, though? No, I don't think it was. I think I think it's exactly what you said. I mean, I all the things I'm telling you about when he called me upstairs, when he, uh, you know, when I had the meeting with him, those are all in the first three weeks. Okay. All right. Then my, uh, I think probably maybe he visited, maybe, I don't even remember that, but, uh, but he also directed. Yeah, he did. That's Mm -hmm. right. And I shot the one that he directed. That was interesting. Michael, at different points in your career, you've obviously had, you know, different roles. You've been the director, you've been director of photography, uh, cinematographer. I was a, I was a PA. You were a PA. Okay. No PA electrician, best boy, gaffer. Yeah. You did it all. Wow. So clearly we're, we're Luddites not too involved with the process. So I was going to ask, so how do those roles work together uh, on a shoot? You're asking me if I can separate it? Yeah. I mean, like in, in my opinion, if you're used to being the director of photography, if you found yourself as the, as the director, you know, do you find that you want to kind of step in on, is it tempting to step in on the director of photography's role? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's the trick. Look, I'm trying to think of how to say this, but, um, so, you know, so working on a comedy, we're shooting in a swamp. Swamp shooting sucks. Like, like there's no good way around it. It's not going to be fun. I know that because I worked on a movie called Angel Heart. Oh yeah. Sucked. Uh, so we're doing this tv show it's a comedy and we go scout the uh, we go to look the, right we're going on the tech scout to see the uh swamp so we end up like going down this dirt road for miles and i keep looking back i'm like the swamp looks pretty good back there <laughs> like not not two miles in but anyway so then we go in you know and the swamp has those little cypress nubs sticking out so like you know every every five feet you got to be careful where you're walking you know, there's snakes, you know, uh, and I'm looking around and I'm like, you know, I would not, I would figure out a way to not use any lights in here because it's going to be such a drag to bring lights and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the DP brought in lights and like frames from overhead, you know, cranes. And it just drove me. Cause again, I mean, look at when, when they say rap, I leave, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Somebody opens the door for me and I get in. Uh, but there's people still there then carrying these heavy lights through the swamp. And it just, that kind of thing makes me crazy when I know, when I know that there's just so many different ways to do it. Mm. And some are easier and some are harder. And sometimes you think that the harder way is better. But one thing I learned over the years, and I think this is true of most, uh, most DPs, is everybody always continually tried to do it with less. Like not more. Yeah. You know, more, maybe more if you're making Lawrence of Arabia or like, you know, (laughs) 
something like that. But, you know, my, uh, my experience with the great cameramen was a, they did know a lot of ways, a lot of different ways to do it, but also they, their ultimate goal was to do it with as little as possible. I worked with a great cinematographer, Harris Savides. I was uh, his gaffer on certain things. And Harris would be great at uh, like calling an audible. I used to hate, you know, I get for some, uh, some really good uh, DPs. So then when people would hire me, they would always like ask a lot of questions. They're like, oh, you worked on uh, Mississippi Burning. Yeah. Yeah. So you worked with Peter Bijou. Yeah. So, well, how do you think Bijou would like this scene? And like, well, that's cheating. <laughs> it's cheating on the first job. <clears throat> like, right. like you can't ask me on the first job. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I'm working for Harris and this was early on in, in our relationship. And I used to work for a big music video DP named Mark Plummer. Mm-hmm. And Mark does crazy beautiful uh work he did a lot of the early fincher videos Hmm. um the madonna one paula abdul all those like really really beautiful great great cinematographer so harris says to me mike how would Plummer like this so I, i like harris so i'm like well and before i even say anything he goes let's do the exact opposite like, like just for fun, like just to try something different. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's, there's those guys. And I think that that's what you learn. Some, I think, I think uh, when you're just starting or when you're younger, you just, you have a lot more, it's not even that you have a lot more energy. You, you, you feel like you just can work harder and harder at it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, I, I would get in the van. Sometimes people look me up. Sometimes they don't, but, you know, this, uh, I got in the van one day and the DP says to me, I just want you to know that I think about photography all the time. And I'm like, I feel really bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what they think I'm going to say. Right. Like, like, Oh, me too. <laughs> like I'd, sh- I'd shoot myself. It's like, and I, cause I also think that that's not what makes a, Again, you know, I'm a big believer in the in that thing about the soul. I think it's you know all the you can have all the technological uh, you know knowledge that you want, but unless something, it's got to be some kind of breath. I like that. You know, like yeah. No, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just big picture wise. Um, but yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's what I I. Again, it's the operators. It's like I mean, lately I've been working with a lot of young people, and some of so some of them are curious and they ask me questions. And I'm very outspoken because I'm also older and I'm close to the end of my career. I don't want it to be, you know. I want to keep working. It's the most fun I have, but things are changing, and um, so I feel like you know I love when they when they ask me questions. So something about operating in the the. Uh, script supervisor said to me, well, what do you think? What do you think makes a good operator? I said, well, there's only the only, the only thing that makes a good operator is, is the heart. Hmm. 
because yeah. he I had problems with the operators. There's a lot of people today. The business is so crazy and there's so much work. A lot of people are moving up sooner than they used to. Mm. So they're still kind of learning on, on the job. And there's an opera, the, the operating, something would happen and I would say, oh, shit. And the script supervisor would say, well, just go tell them to change it. And I said, you know, I could do that. I said, but as soon as I go over there and tell him, he'll never get it right. Because he has no confidence and he's he's more worried about the physical operating of it instead of like feeling when to move the camp. Because hmm. it's a feeling. And um, yeah, that, that I have no patience for steady cam people either. Because everybody thinks they're a steady cam guy if they buy the uh, rig. <laughs> and um, some people are great at it, and other people have just bought the rig. And it's like, you know, it's like, no, that's not what a steady cam is supposed to do. <laughs> but, uh, but again, I think, I think it's all about. Um, I think it's all about heart. And I think that, I think that goes down to crew also. You don't, you feel it in a different way in the crew In the crew, it's more of a morale and uh, feeling like a family. Right. And you know, that, that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, the people on weeds, my God, we were eight years, wow. you know, three months every year for eight years. So. Michael, I like to ask this. Uh, it's always interesting to hear people's, uh, answer to this, you know, you, you had an extensive career. So going back, how did you wind up working in Hollywood? Was it a long-term goal or did it happen another way? You say had a career. (laughs) You've had. (laughs) (laughs) Spending enough money on therapy as it is. Um, um, Oh, you want to know that story? Yeah. Yeah. Great. You know, I always loved movies from when I was a kid. And uh, my father used to take me to big movies, you know, like Lawrence of Arabia, those kinds of things, where you where get the program, there was an intermission. So I always loved them. You know, the family was a big TV family. And back then you had good movies on TV, you know, on the three or four networks. And you had the million dollar movie that showed the same movie every night for like five nights. So it was all that kind of stuff. and And then... I think in, in high school, I tried to make one movie, a Super 8 movie as a project, and it was pretty <clears throat> silly. But this, then I, I go to college. I, was gonna, I went to college for pre-med, and I quit that in three weeks <laughs> uh, for various reasons. I didn't want to be a – I think to be, if you're a good doctor, you're a doctor 24 hours a day for the rest of your life, and I wasn't ready to commit to that kind of – and uh, other things happened. It was the 70s, and I started to – you could look at it two ways. I started to think more about stuff or you could think maybe I was thinking less about stuff <laughs> because I didn't think about how I would make a living. And so I became an English major because I decided that I should just do uh, what I like to do and worry about making money later. My father was in the garment business. He had a factory in uh, New Jersey. And if I knew if I wanted to, I could work in that, Mm. that, that would be a living hell, but you know, I always had that in the back, but so then, so I go to college. Now I'm an English major 
at a tiny school in Pennsylvania. Where, where are you guys again? We're in Indiana. So we like to, we're in Indianapolis. We like to say we're about an hour north of Pawnee. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, that's funny. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I go to school in Pennsylvania and um, there's only a couple of film courses, like film 101. Mm. And uh, one of the English professors really liked foreign films. So he did a couple of foreign films. This guy eventually went on to run the Academy, uh, like the actual president, the, the guy who wow. does the work. Um, so I did those. And then between my June, I, be, I became the guy who programmed the films for the college. This was an electable, like student council position. Um, uh, because I was the guy who knew all the weird movies, like quickly. I, I absorbed, I absorbed that world quickly. Even to this day, uh, it's, it's very funny. Some of the stuff that I, <laughs> that I know. Um, it became a big Robert Downey senior fan, mm. tried to get him to speak at my college, uh, had booked him to speak and then he had to cancel at the last minute, but he still, he said, I'll have lunch with you and your girlfriend. So we had lunch at the diner and it was with the junior also, who was probably like 10 at the, 10 at the time. Wow. But anyway, so because I was the guy who rented films, I would, I would get the catalogs and inside one of the catalogs was write an essay about, uh, what, what you want to do in the film business. So I figured I had nothing to lose. So I wrote this essay that said, I have no idea because I don't even know what these people do. Like, I don't know. I don't know what a gaffer does. I don't know what, I don't know. What's a grip, but like, you know, what is a camera operator? So that was the extent of my, uh, essay basically. And so five of us, and I'm still convinced that only five people sent in essays <laughs> because the five people were very, were very, it was a very strange crew, very interesting five people. And uh, so I spent the summer in Los Angeles at Warner Brothers, the summer of 75, 76, just uh, observing. It was called an observation program. Interesting. I said, then once you see it, I just fell in love with it. You know, and this is back, I'm sure it's probably not so easy to do today, but I would literally be wandering by myself, like down the back lot, you know, Western town, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just so magical. Hmm. And so then, then the trick was how to get a job. And so especially living in New York, there's no good, the film community is so, especially then was so tiny. And there was one mammoth union called the uh, IA. And the IA, Local 52, is impossible to get into if you weren't related to somebody. It was an extremely closed shop mm. because there wasn't enough work to go around. So you yeah. wanted to make sure that. And um, so anyway, so I ended up, I became a bike messenger because the ad in the Village Voice said, you want to be in the film business. Because before faxes and everything else, documents you know had to go from advertising agency to the uh, production company wow. so i would go to the production companies dropping off packages and stuff i had a, I had a big advantage which is uh most bike messengers were drunks and i wasn't and i was relatively clean and um so i think the secretaries 
you know, were more happy to see me than they were to see the other guys. But then I would leave that resume, that useless resume, you know, your first one. Yeah. That's, that's got like nothing on it, but like just hoping. And uh, finally, one day when I came in, and it was only after like three weeks of being a bike messenger. Thank God. Uh, that was a hard job. Um, that this secretary, uh, when I walked in and handed her, you know, the envelope or whatever, she goes, Oh, here's my boss. I'd been telling him about you. This guy, his name was Ron. He's a real cocky guy. And he says to me, uh, here, you want to be in the business? I said, yeah. He goes, well, how much you make as a bike messenger? My first lesson in the business. Because <laughs> I told him the truth. I said, a hundred bucks a week. He says, I'll give you a hundred bucks a week. So he did. And he did it for like two years. And at the end of which I'm like, you know, I got to move on because I can't do a hundred bucks a week anymore. Even though my apartment was 150 a month in New York and, wow. you know, back in the day. Yeah. I lived one block from CBGB's. And... So, uh, I realized I couldn't do the hundred bucks a month anymore. And then I became, uh, I took the test to become an electrician in a different union called NABIT, North American Broadcast Engineers and Technicians. They picked up the slack for uh, smaller shows, smaller movies, and uh, became an electrician, worked in commercials, and then met someone named Stefan Chopsky, who was a gaffer, became part of his crew. Stefan had a lot of good connections. Um, he would work for Michael Bauhaus when Michael Bauhaus would come here. So I did a John Sales movie with, uh, <laughs> with Michael, a crazy horror movie called Q with Stefan. And then After Hours with uh, Bauhaus. It was just all, you know, just you, you, you find that crew and you're a part of that crew. Like, so then Stefan becomes a DP and his two best boys are me and Morris Flam. Morris went on to become a very big gaffer uh, for, uh, oh, the Australian guy, John Seal. So like okay. Morris, he went on to gaff like English patient, you know, that kind of film. Was, uh, I always I find the family trees really interesting, like who goes where from where. Yeah. Um, and then um, Angel Heart came to town. And the producer that we had done a bunch of movies with, After Hours and uh, the John Sales film, he had been Alan Parker's AD, so he wanted to hire Stefan as the gaffer for the British DP. Stefan got hired to shoot a film. So they said, well, just bring in the best boys because there's going to be a British gaffer also. So... I went in first to be interviewed and the guy asked me like three questions. He was happy. He's like, all right, I'm going to hire you. So Morris didn't even get to go in, but so then that's kind of how we all ended up doing different things. And once I worked for the British guys, I mean, Angel Heart's just such a, it's, it's funny because having worked on it, you, you can't tell, but like when you mention Angel Heart to some people, they just think it's incredible. So you know, and then I, I hooked up with those guys. I did like three movies with Parker. With Angel Heart, Mississippi Burning, and uh, Come See the Paradise. Mm. That learning experience was just ridiculous. The British style of lighting and the British style of filmmaking. It was just really fascinating. And uh, 
like a, an, another good tool to have in the uh, toolbox. I mean, then from that, uh, that was what then right after Mississippi burning that I said, you know, we got to get out of here. I can't, I can't deal with the crack thing. I've had it with the East village. Mm. You know, it's just, everything's too hip. And so let's go get married in uh, California. <laughs> so moved to California. When I moved to California, I only knew one producer who worked on both coasts. So he hired me to gaff on this uh, commercial. The other producer on that commercial produced for Fincher. And Fincher at that time was doing uh, mostly videos and the occasional commercial. And Fincher did not like, there was somebody he didn't like or something that he didn't like about something. So this producer said to him, well, why don't we hire this guy, Michael Trim, to be the pre-rigging gaffer. This was for the Madonna Express Yourself uh, video. Oh, sure. And I don't think there'd been a bigger video at that point. So I did all the pre-lighting and then, you know, and that was all for that guy, Mark Plummer. And then, I mean, you know, then I ended up doing all these Nike spots and, you know, all that prime early Fincher stuff, instant karma, uh, tons of videos. <laughs> same thing with Michael Bay because they were all at the same company propaganda. Mm. Um, and then I started to think about shooting. So I used to make jokes with, uh, Harris, like I was trying to, I used to make these jokes about how we could invent me as a great DP <laughs> so that an agent wanted me. So then some guy calls me up and says, look, I'm trying to be a director and I have some spec spots I want to shoot. Do you want to shoot them? So I said, sure. So I ended up shooting these spec spots, these three or four spots and um, had a great time. And then next thing I know, Fincher is, he used to do these rock the vote spots for MTV. Mm -hmm. I remember this. I'm sure they're on, I'm sure they're all on YouTube. Yep. Um, but there were these little spots. They were all fun. And he said, uh, he offered, he's like, you know, if you want, you can shoot them because he needed people to do them for free. So I said, sure. And then, and then that's all you need. Even just doing something for free for him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Then my next, the next thing I did was, Nike, Scotty Pippen, you know, huge. So yeah, once you work for him, everything kind of opens up and you still know him. It's very funny. I mean, it's, it's cause I know him at this point, like 35 years. <laughs> I was in New Orleans and New Orleans has an empty airport on the other side of their new airport. Mm. They haven't torn it down yet. So we were shooting down in the parking lot and the, uh, the medic says to me, Trim your buddy Fincher's upstairs. And I don't think people believe me. And I'm like, oh, let's go see him. So take me up there. So he does, you know. And we're all, you know, we're all masked up. And I'm like 30 feet away. And he's like, Trim, what are you doing here? You know. <laughs> so it's so yeah, I did a bunch of stuff with him, did a bunch of stuff. Uh, and then like, you know, I also got a spaceman with him. I did the uh Rolling Stones video. Hmm. And that was another one. I, mean, I, th I think he only hired me because it was, uh, he was shooting in New York and he's not a New Yorker at all. <clears throat> and he's like, you know, help me, show me some fun places, some good locations other than the ones that he had chosen. Um, and then from that commercials, videos, then the commercial guy that I worked for, 
three things happened. 9-11, the main guy I worked for in commercials had massive heart attacks. He's, he's fine, but he just stopped working. Mm. Um, and uh, there was a huge actor's strike in commercials. So when everything came back, the work didn't come back. And then uh, I got a call from an old agent who said, somebody's looking for you. This guy, Adam Bernstein. So I called Adam and I said, well, where have you been? Because we did commercials like six years ago. And he said, no, I left the commercial world. I'm in the uh, TV world. Okay. I guess that was a long way of getting there. So he, uh, he says, I need you to shoot a pilot for me. So I'd never done that. I'd never done anything like that. I mean, like I said, the longest thing I'd done was, was a music video. Right. So uh, I said, okay. So I end up shooting this pilot for him. I find out later, you know, it's not easy to shoot a pilot for a, a, a network. They have, an, they have an approved list mm. of people to choose from. And I said, well, how did I get on that list? And he goes, oh, you weren't, you weren't on that list. <laughs> but, but no one was available. So I asked him if, if we could hire you. And we did. So then from that, that pilot did not get picked up because it was way too good. <laughs> um, that's a common problem. And then uh, the next thing I did was something called, it was about two lawyers, head cases. Mm. And it lasted five episodes. And the director or producer on that was a guy named Craig Zisk. And what I was amazed at was when they told us at lunch, finish the day and then go home. Because this was really my first TV show. Uh, I noticed everybody was outside. And then they all came back in and they all had jobs over. Like, you know, they just got onto other shows. Wow. And I felt like it's like, <laughs> I'm not, a, I don't have another show because I didn't have, I didn't have any connections yet. And so I saw, I said to Craig, I'm like, like, did you get, you have another show already? <laughs> I don't have a show. And he goes, no, 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 don't worry about it. I, I got the show called weeds. Cause he was, he was, starting the second season of weeds because the first season of weeds, they did the same thing as parks. They got rid of a bunch mm -hmm. of people and brought in mm -hmm. new people to change stuff around. And so, uh, I had to interview with Mary Louise and, uh, she just asked me what I thought of the show. And I said, well, it's not a comedy. <laughs> so she was happy. And then, so then, then we, sh I shoot that show shooting other shows because weeds had the perfect schedule. It was in the off season for the three months. So there were other shows I shot. Um, and then one day on weeds and what had happened was we had a series of directors who, who weren't, who just weren't great, I think. And I think I had to help or maybe it appeared that I helped. Mm -hmm. Cause then one day, uh, Mary Louise said to me, do you want to direct an episode? And I'm, I was happy, you know, every step of the way. I was a busy DP. I was working a lot. Um, but I'm like, you know what? I just, I just, I remember the synapses. I'm like, just say yes and think about it later. So I said, <laughs> yes. And then I went up to Craig and I said, I want you to know that Mary Louise asked me if I wanted to direct because I don't want you to think that I went up to Mary Louise behind your back because, mm. because I want to be a director. Right. Like it, it hadn't dawned on me. And I knew that occasionally, uh, especially on a series that runs that long, they throw the director, uh, they throw the DP uh, 
the occasional directing gig mm. more or less as a bonus because you know you get residuals for that one you don't get residuals as a dp and got it because you get paid more and he said well that's good because we were going to ask you to do one we just we just had to make sure it was okay with her mm. so i did and so that year i did one the next year i did three i think the last season i did more than half mm-hmm. and then the same thing and then so from that 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 finished and uh, Genji asked me if I wanted to go to New York to work on Orange. <laughs> so I did, went to New York, did, produced and directed that first season of Orange. Seven of the 13, I think. That was the best season of Orange. <laughs> I will say humbly. That's terrific. And uh, yeah, and then from there, I do one or two a year. Any regret not going back to movies? Movies are a whole other thing, you know? I mean, I, like I'm... I feel I feel lucky that I got to work on the movies that I did work on. When I was uh, like right after Orange, I was like the hot guy for a little bit, so I'd go in for a ton of interviews, and I tried the, uh, I, 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 like we could say I stuck my big toe in to the movie thing, like in terms of interviews and one presentation, and no, no. not the. Uh, no, not at this age, and certainly not. Uh, I don't have the patience. It takes they take way too long now. They're like it's over a year of life. Yeah, um, if it's not the right one, then there's that movie you did. You know, it's it's. Uh, I'm very happy being the guest director. I'm enjoying where I'm at. I'm. I go in script I like. It's actors I really really enjoy working with actors. Uh, the better the actor, the more fun it is. They seem to have a good time with me. Uh, part of that, I think, is because I was taught well by Mary Louise about um, things to do and don't do with certain types of actors. Mm. And I worked on uh, Lodge 49, which was good. Patriot, which was incredible. Yeah. And um, what else? there's that one that Jason Siegel did that I worked on with Sally Field and uh, she was incredible. <laughs> but, um, I had so much fun working with her because I'm old enough to know. I remember watching her, you know, as the flying nun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I would, and I would remind her, dispatches from elsewhere. Oh, uh, okay. It was a really weird, like, sort of vanity project for Jason, I think. <laughs> But um, but it had incredible act. Richard Grant, my God, I couldn't believe I was working with Richard Grant. Hmm. So uh, that I really enjoy. I have fun. I have fun working with uh, with good actors. I just, that thing I did, Sixty First Street, Courtney Vance, incredible actor, and Anjanou Ellis. Also, wow. yeah, yeah. No, it's it's fun. Like the, it's fun. You, you, you've done multi-camera shows as well, right? Not just single camera or mostly single camera shows. Yeah. I, I don't, I wouldn't know what to do with a multi-camera. Okay. I was curious. All right. Yeah. I mean the, the, the faux documentary style, that shooting style. I mean, I think that's, it definitely lends itself to a certain type of storytelling. Yeah. The, uh, the, the multi-cam thing, like I love Lucy that, yeah, that's more like, to me, that's more like almost like stage directing because mm-hmm. it all has mm-hmm. to play that uh you know maybe you have 200 degrees to play to yeah but yeah no that's a that's a weird one 
<laughs> no, and I like, I don't even like using two cameras. <laughs> That's a, I hate using three cameras. <laughs> um, because partly because a lot of times, you know, I, I, you, you, I kind of know what I want. Mm-hmm. The other, the other thing is I also don't like, you know, you used to always do this thing where you put the two cameras together. So then like tight camera, wide cam. Mm. So like, you know, one's like this and one's like this, something like that. You get the idea. Mm-hmm. But it's like, like if I was doing that to Alan right now in the tight camera, that picture would be the green picture back behind him is on the left side. Mm-hmm. In the wide camera, it's on the right side. So you'll cut back and forth. And then, and that's when you hear, like, that's when the producers are like, well, people don't notice. But yeah, yeah, they notice. They know. They can see a jump cut. <laughs> it's not even that, I mean, it may, they may not, like, if you ask them, they may not yeah. be able to tell you. Yeah. But believe me, it affects the brain, you know. So, yeah, I try to, I actually think today, and I know this is blasphemy, but for, for TV, I think you can get away with blowing a lot of it up now with the 4K and 6K. Well, circling back to Parks really quick, I mean, I guess outside the technical stuff we've talked about, you know, how is that show different from some of your other television work? Parks? Yeah. Well, again, I think it's like, you know, you sit there and you, you'll you watch the director and basically stage it. And then you just talk about where you can put the cameras. I mean, that literally was what Parks was, was, okay, that's the scene. Hmm. I mean, like a quarter of the scenes are just exactly what you're looking at here. It's just me yeah. talking to the camera. Yeah. So that was easy. And then the other ones are just like, you know, where can we put the cameras and do we need to take another take to get that third angle? Mm. But really, again, I, um, it was so much of it was up to uh, Shauna and Tom. Like once they found that spot, I'm trying to think if I ever, ever even had to tell them I feel like it was so natural for them. Like they knew when to zoom in. They knew when to look at somebody. Somehow they knew like, and that's what I mean. Like this had nothing to do with the DP. It's like, there's something poetic about (laughs) going from like Amy saying something and then moving and zooming and then Pratt or whoever like is there and is aware enough to like turn to the camera at that same exact time. Right. That's cool. That's a total symbiotic relationship between the, uh, between the operators. How was the cast and, and the, the crew of producers and like, just like, you know, outside of the technical work, you know, behind the camera, how was it just being on the set there? What was the culture of that show? Parks? Yeah. Oh, Parks was just fun. Everybody, everybody was a uh, family. I mean, you know, Amy used to bring the, the kids, uh, no, it was always it was always fun. Um, great atmosphere. Oh, I, I always remember the bacon because there were some some episodes had bacon in them. <laughs> Quite a few. Um, yeah, and, and uh, the props got this bacon from this place. That this bacon was so good. Mm. I mean, like crazy good, pepper crusted, but but like sugary. You know. Ugh. Honey You're molasses, making whatever it was. Right now, I can see it. Oh here. my God. No, me too. <laughs> but whatever it was, it was just incredible. I always, I remember there was always that. It was always, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was, it was also fun being in, in those sets, all those weird, <laughs> those crazy murals. Oh yeah. I wonder, I wonder what happened to those. I wonder, 
because they were on some kind of canvas, I think. I bet you, I bet you Shores got those somewhere because they were, they were too good. <laughs> In his basement. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but yeah, no, it was just, and it, was, it wasn't that far from home. That was good. It's all on that one lot that has, you know, great history. Uh, CBS Radford. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes back. That was one of the studios that made all those old, older John Wayne movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. You got to love that when there's good history for the places. Yeah. And there were a lot of other good shows going on at that same time around there. There were. What else was there? I remember we talked to somebody and they they would just, you know, they said they were yeah. Andy Milder, actually, who's the one that said it to us from Weeds. Mm. Uh, we talked to Andy because he was a guest star, I think, on maybe six episodes. Right. He talked Andy about, talk you know, anybody. <laughs> he's a talker. So I know Andy's awesome. He's awesome. But he, he talked about he would go around and actually just stop on all the other sets and yeah. kind of just say, hey, how's it going? And, you know, that's how he'd get new gigs. So, yeah, no, it's always fun. Yeah, it's always fun. Yeah. He's right. Like you got to put your face out in front of him. But now I hear, you know, here's what I heard yesterday. You guys probably understand a little bit of this of how it works, but I was talking to an actor and he said that now, because he was talking about Instagram and followers and YouTube and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, now, you know, if I go in to be waiter number two, Mm. okay, so you have two lines, right? He goes, if, I, if, if it's me and one other guy, the other guy went to Juilliard. I didn't, but I have 80,000 followers on Instagram and he's only got 300. Yep. Hmm. He's like, who do you think they're going to go for? And I'm like, get out. <laughs> I'm like, first of all, how do they even know? He goes, well, now everybody Googles everybody. Yep. I'm like, oh my God. So yeah, that's what I mean. Like everything is just so... And that's this week. Yep. (laughs) You know, five years ago, it wasn't like that. So it's all just changing so quickly. Well, I mean, the the so-called influencers who are actually talented and can create content really have, you know, because it's a whole new way of getting into the business now. No, no, but I think you're totally right. I mean, my daughter is a photographer and to do it, there was like, you know, she, she worked the social media thing and that's what, um, fashion editors, magazine editors, they all look on Instagram at young photographers. And next thing you know, you know, and I was like, Oh my God, I I had not even, it's not even in my vocabulary that that's how it would work. Cause I was asking a, a photographer friend of mine who was very successful and he's like, you know, in the old days, this is what would happen is you would ask me to help her. I would be able to help her. He's like, I'm losing jobs to people who don't know how to work a camera because they have 50,000 followers. Wow. So, yeah, but I think it, 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 it'll figure itself out. I wish that the TV would figure itself out because I'm feeling, and I mean, it has to sooner or later, but there's just so much stuff on that's so good. Mm-hmm. But because it's so self-contained in a bubble, I don't know everything that's on that's good. Yeah. <clears throat> to even make the choice. Like you'll find it like Christopher Walken is on a TV show right now. Did you know that? Yep. Mm-hmm. Just watch them yeah, on I mean, severance. Like, yeah. Right. Why does not why doesn't everyone know that? You know? So that's what I mean. Like it's because they don't they they figured out how to make content for sure, 
Yeah. But what they haven't figured out is how to promote that content the same way like a movie used to be promoted so that everybody knew about it. That's a great point. Yep. That's what that's and that's it's actually bugging me because I like I know I'm missing stuff because I don't mm-hmm. watch much stuff. But there's certain things like I did start Severance, which I thought was really shot well. Yeah, everything's in flux. Everything's just everybody's trying to figure everything out. It's kind of fascinating. You're right, though. I think with all the different streaming services out there and the AMCs and everybody else, there's there's all these little bubbles. And the only way that they kind of then diagram together is through the talent. So, yeah, they seem like little communities in them in and of themselves, though, outside that. Walken is in Severance. Yeah. Yeah. He played. Uh, yeah. He's a uh, he was actually had a decent sized role in that. And I, I thought he was terrific in it. Honestly, I thought it was uh, the the role he played was not what I expected for him and kind of thought would have maybe been out of his depth, but not at all. A great actor. Yeah. I worked really with is. him. Really? I worked with him on uh, a Mickey Rourke film called Homeboy. Okay. That Mickey wrote. Kind of remember that. Part of his uh, boxing. Mm, that's right. Okay. Infatuation. Yeah. We shot it in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Wow. Yeah. And he was, uh, he played a stand-up, a bad, an ex-con stand-up comedian. Well, what's next for you? Um, where, what are you working on right now? Waiting. Something will turn up. It's always funny. It's a, a lot of times, I take a if I take a trip, some kind of odd uh, thing in the ether. As soon as I go away, <laughs> get a call for a job. That but, seems the way. But no, it's 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 all good. It's all uh, it's fun. It's just so much fun. That's great. They're shooting like crazy in New York City. That's good. And that's different, right? I mean, that's. Yeah, no, I think, well, I think, I think everywhere is super busy. There's just not, mm-hmm. there's just so much. There's scripted shows 10 years ago to now, they've, uh, they've doubled. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a lot. That's a big. It's a lot. Yeah. Do you have you to know, live in Hollywood anymore? I don't know. I haven't had to live in Hollywood in years. Okay. Uh, after weeds, none of my work is, I think I've done one, maybe two episodes in Hollywood, you know, in LA. Yeah. And that's since weed. So there was, what was that? Like 10 years ago, nine yeah. years ago. Interesting. No, Chicago, Atlanta, New York, New Orleans. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's why it's what trying to figure out like where to live now, because with, with the kids <laughs> gone, because the kids are totally grown. It's like, we really don't have to live here could live anywhere. So that's good. Well, Mike, thanks uh, again for agreeing to talk to us today. It's been a, our pleasure and uh, absolutely, you know, we absolutely look forward to seeing what you do next. All right, thanks, Alan, <laughs> Mark, thank you very much. Thank you. Michael. Thank you, sir. We'll talk again soon. All right. All right. Take care. Bye. All, right, thanks. All right. See ya. everybody we're back well mark that was a, again that was a terrific interview i'm glad we got a chance for our viewers to hear the whole thing and uh, I, I enjoyed re-listening to that interview with with michael he was a great guy to talk to yeah he he's interesting he's very very gracious as you pointed out he's very thoughtful and i think we've been really lucky so far you know alan we've we've talked about how we're we're very uh we've been very blessed with the uh, amount of interviews that we've gotten and with the the sort of people that we've gotten who have been very kind with their time but we've also had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people not just cast members but people kind of behind the scenes you know it's really quite interesting 
Yeah, absolutely. We get to also speak with director Ken Whittingham and writer Norm Hiscock, writer-producer Norm Hiscock, and uh, of course now Michael Trim. Uh, and as you heard there in the interview, Michael has offered to help us get in contact with a couple of the camera operators. So we're going to take him up on that. He's actually absolutely. already reached out to us and done that as a follow-up. <laughs> so great thanks to Michael for that. And we've also been in contact with uh, a couple of folks from the casting department. So we're going to see where we can go with that as well. So I'm really looking forward to a couple of the things we've got here in the wings. Oh, me too. I can't wait. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, everybody, for listening today. We're really glad to have you on board. And uh, we'll be back next week with a full new episode. And we look forward to talking to you then. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Live from Pawnee is a copyrighted production of the creators. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Original music was created and performed by Aaron Emerson of Emerson Studios. Clips are used under fair use doctrine for the purpose of commentary and parody. Please see our website at livefrompani.com for more details or to contact us.